Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Overpowering Emotions. I'm super excited today. It's a special day. I have an incredible guest to talk about all things emotion regulation with us, Dr. Hank Weisinger. He's a trained clinical counseling and organizational psychologist. He's the author of several successful books, including New York Times bestsellers, Nobody's Perfect, and Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters Most. I, I highly recommend actually his newest book, The Art of Parental Pressure. It is absolutely fabulous. I read it back to back within two days. Definitely something all parents should should be reading. Uh, Dr. Weisinger, he's also appeared on over 500 television and radio shows. Some of the TV shows include The Today Show, Good Morning America, Oprah, ESPN, and NPR. Uh, really cool fact, his dad was actually the story editor of Superman for 30 years, and he woke up uh, his son every morning roaring up, up, and away, and his, his dad inspired him to help others, and I'm thrilled that he could be here to inspire us today. Uh, we're going to talk all things emotion regulation and COVID regulation, a perfect opportunity to slip this into our skill building series this summer where we're focusing all about how to help our kids regulate their emotions. And I thought this was a perfect episode to supplement that. So I hope you enjoy. So thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to talk about emotion regulation, managing anger, anxiety, and creating positive emotions. I am happy to be here to talk about these subjects. Wonderful. So where do we start? What, where, what do you think is most important? What do I think is most important? I think most important is for parents to know that rule one, in my opinion, is that uh, dealing with their child's anxiety or anger or any uh, emotion for that matter, that rule one is they have to manage their first emotions, their right. emotions first. Yeah. And the reason is because of a process that is called emotional contagion, which it means that emotions are basically like a social virus and they spread from one person to another. So a common example is a three-year-old falls down maybe cuts their knee or something and they start to cry. And then the mother comes over and she sees the kid crying. And the next thing you know, it, the mother is, or the father is uh, really emotionally overreacting. Uh, you know, they become to the outside observer, you know, they become almost hysterical and so on. And what happens is because they are picking up the emotion of their, of their child. Now, flash forward when your son or daughter is 15 years old and they come home from school and you ask a question and for whatever reason, uh, it irritates them and they raise their voice and they get angry. The next thing you know is the parent is getting angry as well. And a minute later, uh, the conversation has gotten totally out of hand. Uh, that would change the different if the parent in that scenario was able to manage their emotions so that when the other person, their son or daughter gets angry, they are not impacted by it. I, I guarantee that most parents, if they're in a waiting room with their son or daughter and the, the son or daughter is really anxious about something, the next thing you know is the parent starts to 
starts to become anxious. Mm -hmm. So I think that is really the place to start for parents having that awareness that in emotional situations, they cannot really help their son or daughter regulate their emotions if they're not doing it uh, they're saying. And also by doing it, it provides a model. Absolutely. I, that's always the first thing that I talk about is importance of co-regulation. And as children get older, they have more capacities compared obviously to, to when they're babies, but even young adults still need the parent to be able to co-regulate. They still can't effectively do that. Even between adults, we see one gets angry, right? And as soon as we start getting angrier, it just explodes. And so it's being able to maintain that calm and not escalate the situation. And, 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 th and that happens also in our adult relationships, you know, with your partner, you know, the classic yeah. example would be uh, being in a car and one partner says something to the other and it becomes a little irritating. And then they interact and they escalate and before you know it they are yelling and screaming in that uh, car ride it happens very it happens very quickly yeah so this is a good skill for any relationship really with our children certainly for sure it is uh, yeah but in it, other ones as well yeah i was going to say it's it's a good thing that's why uh it's smart for parents uh to practice and develop a relaxation response mm -hmm. um you know back in the day when i was in graduate school there was a very big book called the relaxation response by herbert benson who's a cardiologist at harvard and he would teach people and what the book was about is how to learn to relax so that you could do it on cue i mean anybody could go on a vacation and relax the right. point for the parent to remember is to be able to relax when their kid is having a meltdown Right. And by practicing relaxation, it's, you, you start like Pavlov's dogs, you start conditioning yourself. So all you'll have to do is say a particular word and then you can start to calm down. Now, I'm not an expert with the um, young kids, so I don't expect that you can teach a four-year-old a uh, relaxation response, but as they get older, maybe you can, I, I don't know, but as they get older, certainly that becomes an activity that parents can do with their kids and have whether it's after dinner or before dinner you know a a relaxation session just like watching you watch tv with your kids you can do a relaxation so you're also learning to stay calm in each other's present sometimes before a family discussion i've seen family therapy days to have to have a family before a session would start would be part of a session is we do a five minute relaxation exercise and the interesting thing is at the beginning it sounds ridiculous here people say that's silly and they think it's hokey but after a while i find that people would start to um look forward to it yeah and practice it. we we do one of the things that I do at home, but also recommend to families is having family meetings. And so those family meetings are very structured and that's where we bring up, you know, corrective feedback in the heat of the moment is never the time, whether it's around anxiety or chores or anger or being respectful or anything like that. If it's that important that we need to talk about it, we've got to make sure we're calm. So let's have a structured family session or a meeting, but 
in that family meeting, it's fun. It's light. You can put in the relaxation piece. You've got a bowl of popcorn or a bowl of chips just to make the situation lighter as well to keep our prefrontal cortex or thinking brain on and engaged so that we can have, you know, a useful conversation. Uh, by knowing the heat of the moment, it's so hard for parents. So you're right, being able to pair our brain with the word something just to trigger that relaxation because in the heat of the moment when our kids are screaming at us, you're the worst parent ever or um, just completely upset, it can be hard. Sure. Just like when a manager is like that as, you know, well, or as a customer. And, and one of the reasons is, is we become more emotionally aroused. This is what I want parents to remember. We become more uh, cognitively rigid in our thinking. I can guarantee when a parent is really angry at his son or, or, or daughter and they walk out of the room, they are not thinking, I have a wonderful kid. They're <laughs> thinking just the, just the opposite. As the kid is thinking that about their parents. Right. One of the strategies that I would use that when my daughter would get angry at her mother, I would very quickly say to her, uh, Brie, remember that your mother has a lot, does a lot of nice things for you as well. So you interrupt very quickly that anger uh, feedback loop of those negative types of statements that are reinforcing. Right. So that's important for parents to remember that when your son or daughter gets uh, angry uh, to present an alternative explanation um, of the, of the uh, situation. You, you know, it'd be like you're waiting for your friend to come to a movie and the movie starts at eight o'clock and it's like 10 to eight. And you start saying, why aren't they here? They always do this, they're late and so on. And then at 10 after eight, you start to become a little more concerned because now you're thinking maybe something happened to them. Right. So, so parents need to know that when your son or daughter is experiencing distress, anxiety usually is, anger usually is, is one of your strategies is to quickly say something or do something that will short circuit the negative statements that they are saying, because those will only be um, reinforcing. Right. One of the things I actually have parents do is look forward to an outburst, whether it's a, an anxiety panic attack or an anger, you know, sort of emotional outburst by saying, yes, perfect opp opportunity for me to practice my co-regulation skills. So just something, you know, that's just one example, but just changing, you know, our automatic sort of emotional response ourselves. So, yeah, I think that's great. Yep. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I think that is very uh, important. Also, I think adding some, I, I, I think it's also another important starting point when you say dealing with anger and anxiety that we often miss is to understand that emotions are always good because they provide information. It's how we manage the emotion that gets us into trouble. Right. So anger is basically uh, its function is that it is a cue that something is wrong. Now, a lot of times what is wrong is our irrational type of thinking. 
which happens when, and the angrier you become, as I said earlier, the more irrational you be, you become. It'd be like the daughter calling her mother a uh, jerk. And, and if eventually that is going to, she's a jerk, I can't stand her, and all the worst names that you can possibly uh, think about. She's like taking an, where in reality, the mother just didn't want to take her to the mall at a particular time. Right. So now she's quote a, a, a jerk. So you can see how that goes. So a good thing for parents to remember, since anger is a cue that something is wrong, is when their kid is angry, maybe the most effective response is simply to say, what's wrong? Because they're <laughs> gonna tell you what is wrong anyway. And when they do tell you what is wrong, and I'll backtrack to put this in a, in a better context in a, in, in a minute, is for the parent not to get defensive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so on. And, and usually they do uh, because we hear it as we're being blamed for something. Where a better strategy, if they have practiced a relaxation response, is to stay calm and simply keep saying to your son or daughter, tell me more. Right. When, when somebody is angry or anxious, just like when in therapy, you want to get them to articulate their feelings in their thoughts, and then you can start to help them uh, deal with that. And anxiety, so anger is always a cue that something is, is, uh, is wrong. And anxiety, you know, ask people, what does anxiety communicate? Most of us think, well, it means that you're nervous. Yeah, but nervous about what? Uh, People also have to remember that there's, there's some people who are anxious all the time, as you know, clinically we call that uh, trade anxiety. And some people are just anxious in particular certain moments. But I have found that the key thing to remember is that anxiety, A, is about the future and about ho something hostile is going to be happening. That there's a sense of an impending doom. It is not that the kid is anxious about their test. It is because the deep primal thought is that if they don't get a A or a particular grade, that uh, they won't get into the school. That's not even it. It's the primal thought. They'll be rejected by their parents. Right. They will not be I mean, that's what I think. That's my thing. But that's what I think it really comes, you know, comes down to. So, so, you know, I used to tell my daughter when she'd get anxious, I said, Bree, the good thing about anxiety is you don't worry about it. It's all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> you can just, and you can just let it go. So, but that was for me and for my style because I like using a lot of humor. Yeah. I think humor is really a good thing to use. You know, I used to tell my uh, daughter that she looked really pretty when she was yelling and screaming and she was really angry or when she was uh, seven years old. If we don't go to McDonald's, I'm gonna cry uh, all the way home. And I said, good, let me see how high, how loud you can cry. Right. What, what I want parents to realize is that when they're, they're and, and this is probably maybe true for if they're younger, I, I, I don't know, you know, I wanna hear what you think as, as well, but maybe you have to look at what the function is of the, of the behavior. 
So there are many parents that every time their kid starts to cry about something, they will give their kids what they want. Then the kid stops crying. Uh, and as a result, the kid has learned a very effective response. When I want something, I'm just going to cry. I remember my son wanted a um, candy bar or something before dinner. And I said, no, he was young. And he gets out on the floor having a temper tantrum. And then I looked at him like I snuck a look. And he saw that I was looking at him. It's like he was only doing it when I was looking at him. Right. And, and he stopped. And from that point on, I said, no candy bar. But if you don't have a tantrum, go up in your room and do it. Get up in his room and say, what the hell am I going to do in here? Yep. Yep. So that's another important tip for parents to remember is to be able to uh, put the behavior in the, in the context of the situation. And sometimes you can help your son or daughter or at least alleviate what we would consider conventionally an inappropriate you know, behavior like a temper and tantrum or whatever um, by not rewarding it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even by encouraging it. Right. And, and I do talk a lot about that, how we inadvertently are reinforcing this behavior. And so I think that that's good, you know, being able to talk about the function of the behavior and analyzing that. I mean, it, even sometimes there's inadvertent things, you know, just recently uh, there was a young girl suicidal had swallowed a bottle of pills, called her dad let him know. And dad called mom and mom and daughter's relationship was very, very rocky. And mom came swooping in all concerned, of course. And the daughter realized, oh, wow, mom loves me. My fear though is it took such extreme measures for her to realize that mom loves her. And so even though it wasn't attention seeking behavior, I think certainly there was a cry for help. Mm -hmm. You know, I do worry about what the lesson here is from. So now my work is going to be with mom about how she can daily make sure that her daughter's feeling loved and cared for and, you know, doesn't have to go to such huge extremes because I think huh, in our own mind, we, we know we listen to our kids and that we love our kids and that we care for them and would do anything for them. But I think a lot of times kids don't necessarily feel that they're loved and cared for and understood and, and heard. I think, I, I think that's a good point. And I think it's important, maybe some parents every once in a while to ask their son or daughter, you know, what can I do? What makes you feel loved? Yeah. You know, what are the things that, you know, that I, uh, you know, that I do or, or that I can do? sometimes parents feel it but they don't know how to express it or they just express it in a different way that is not as maybe meaningful to the you know to the uh to the son or daughter right mm -hmm. i'll uh, have parents do a scaling question there's a few different scales so on a scale of one to ten how much do i nag you how how much am i on your back so 10 being all the time everything out of my mouth one being nothing and then the other one is how much do you feel heard and understood, loved? You know, I think that those are kind of big scaling questions that I find are really eye-opening for a lot of parents yeah. when they ask their kids. Yeah, especially that, that if your parent's going to ask their kid those questions, they better be able to manage their emotions. A hundred percent. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I found with anger over the years, 
that there, I found a methodology that I would recommend for their parents, uh, for parents when they see their kids becoming angry. And I, I would like to say that, you know, uh, my term was becoming an anger athlete. So to becoming an anger athlete as a parent, it means that you have a particular view, D-I-E-W of anger. And what the V stands for is first to validate their, their feelings. One of the big mistakes I found that parents make, and I'm sure I've done this as, as you know, too, is to say to their kids, they shouldn't feel a certain way. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel angry. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be angry. When in reality, but that's how the kid does feel. And I found that's a message from my clinical days of uh, giving a double message of uh, invalidating a kid's feelings is a good way to put them on the road to becoming a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. So the V is validating their, uh, their feelings. Maybe make a reflective statement. It seems like you feel, you feel angry. Getting little kids maybe to um, uh, uh, act out with their toys or something to show you, whatever it takes in terms of, you got to validate their feelings. And then the I stands for it to investigate, which means why are they becoming angry? Uh, certain things make us angry, we call those provocations. And I think that a good thing for a parent to say to their, 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 their teen, especially, are what are the things that I do that trigger your anger? Now, in reality, I like to know what provokes my anger because we both know it's not the thing that's making me angry, that becomes my response. But once you start to know like if, if, if I'm your son and I say, mom, every time you ask me about my uh, grades, it makes me angry. So now as a parent, two things I've just learned. One, I'm not gonna ask my kid about grades directly. Uh, and if I do wanna talk about his grades, I need to do it in a way that does not provoke him, mm -hmm. um, which might be, a, ways that I don't know yet, but I will now have to think about because I all I know is asking about grades is going to make him angry. At the same time, it tells me as a parent that my son needs to be able to talk about learn how to talk about the stressful or uncomfortable or, or threatening topics uh, in a calm way that he might not be there yet. So, you know, investigate with a little kid, how was school? Did you get into an argument with any of your friends or whatever? I won't wordsmith it. And then the uh, E stands for encouraging them to express their, their feelings, uh, which might be for a little kid drawing a picture of, of, of something. Um, uh, exercising is a, is a good thing way of expressing your, your feelings. And the W stands for teaching them what I like to call workout skills, teaching them how to problem solve and teaching them many times, a very important point for teaching kids in terms of anger, especially with their friends, is actions have consequences and that the consequences that their friends throw back at them many times are a result of the actions that they, that they created. So if you throw uh, sand at a friend, what do you expect them to, uh, you know, to do, to take responsibility? But, but I think that the lesson with the problem solving 
and for adults and parents to learn too, is that many times when we have a problem, we always attribute it to the other person. You know, parents will say, how many times have I had to tell you this? And they'll say, your kid isn't listening. I'm sure you've heard that many times from parents. My son doesn't Every listen. day, yeah. <laughs> rather, you know, I, like in the working world, when a manager would say to me, I've spoken to this guy a hundred times and he doesn't get it. I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking, how many more times do you have to do it before you realize what you're doing isn't working? Right. So parents who have to keep telling their kid how to, to make their bed or clean up their room or to do their homework, maybe they need to, they'd be more effective if they could come up with another way of communicating that. So their solution is the problem, is, is the essence of, of that, how they're trying to solve the problem by nagging, yelling, dictating, demanding, is not working. That's right. the problem, yeah. not, their, not their kid. So to learn to come up with a different way of, of responding. Right. I and think watching, one more point I want to make, watching TV, with your son and daughter. I wrote an article once, because my father used to do this with me. He was a writer, he was a story editor, Superman for 30 years. So every time we'd be watching a Twilight Zone on a Friday night, within one minute, he'd say to me, can you guess the ending? Did you guess it? And through that process of watching Twilight Zones and Hitchcocks and all my shows growing up, rather than reading and doing homework, because I was not a good student, but I learned how to be creative and think. And years later, I found with my kids watching 90210 with my daughter, Bree, how would you handle that situation? Uh, we can use TV not to babysit, but as an activity. What is the difference, I would ask a parent, reading a book with your kid versus watching a TV show? I don't understand what the difference is mm -hmm. in terms of processing it and discussing it and so on. Um, so I think that's a good way of how a parent can teach their kids how to handle emotions and feelings as well as learn how uh how they would handle you know situations that they're going to see and have to deal with you know um every day and i love that you were using open-ended questions right how how would you handle that situation because i know if we go in you know let's say we see our child being bossy or doing something that's creating a friendship fire for us to come in and say, Hey, whoa, you got to be flexible. Stop being so bossy. You know, if us, if we come in and start telling them they're going to get defensive. And so by asking questions so that they can do the problem solving the W piece, right? They start needing to work through that they're the ones who can get to that realization and will get to that realization versus, you know, we're always mean and we're jumping in. It's none of our business. Um, so is that how you would help them with through that problem solving process then yeah. in, in a real situation? Yeah. Okay. I like that term friendship fire, by the way. Yeah. That we have lots in our house every day. There's a friendship fire. So <laughs> very catchy. I also think it's important for parents because so much of anxiety and anger come out of our irrational beliefs. You know, a, a girl doesn't get invited to a particular party and she becomes uh, depressed because her irrational assumption is that everybody should love me. You know, and, and I should be invited to uh, to every party and so on. This is where a lot of shoulds start to come in. And I think that it's important for parents to know that some of the more common, well, 
psychologists like to call uh, distorted thinking styles, uh, magnification, making a mountain out of a molehill, which mm -hmm. intensifies the anger and anxiety. So it's like when they say the dance is the most important thing in my, uh, you know, in my life and so on. The, the parent's job when their son or daughter is magnifying is to help them put it in perspective. And sometimes you can put it in perspective by using humor and sometimes you can put it in perspective by even exaggerating it even, uh, you know, even more. Another one is destructive labeling. So they get, they're angry at their friend, like in the example I called earlier, they, they call him a jerk or stupid, when in reality, they're taking just something that they didn't like and they are making it uh, a global, global, making the person globally, um, globally negative. And a third is the, what we like to call the imperative thinking where the, the person has a lot of shit statements within themselves. Like I should always get an A. I should always be, I should always be first string on the football team. I should always do this. And a lot of adults do that as, as well. Plato called this the ought motive. People get angry when they perceive they did not do what they ought to have done. Right. And how many, and how, and this is what makes parents angry. You know, I, I once went around in room and you have parents listening, you should fill this out, write this out 10 times. Uh, I get angry when, and I'll say like one person would write, I get angry when my kids don't listen to me. So let's turn that, what is your rule that your kids should always listen to you? I would tell parents that any parent who has the rule that the kids should always listen to them is gonna end up in a mental hospital because that they didn't, mm -hmm. that is not going to happen. Right. So when you, when, you, when you fill that out, I get angry when, as a little exercise, you'll see that many of the things that parents get angry about are because of their should statements, their rules are being violated. I said to my daughter once, Bree, you should be doing your homework now. She said, Dad, I do my homework from 8 o'clock to 9.30. I said, and I get good grades. So don't tell me your rules. My rules are working for me. And I respected that. Yeah, yeah. That's so important. Uh, so I think these are these are all really good ideas. I mean, monitoring our own emotions as parents, the the thinking traps that we fall into. For kids, I I bring those up as henchmen, our amygdala's kind of villain, not all mm -hmm. the time, kind of like Loki, right? From Marvel, where God of mischief, sometimes good, sometimes a trickster. And then there's all of these henchmen and the henchmen are the thinking trap. So being able to identify where we're falling into and responding differently at the end of the day, that's really what a lot of the work for parents are. Is there anything else before we look at creating positive emotions, anything else that would be really important for our listeners to know about just managing anger and anxiety, whether it's for ourselves or helping I, our kiddos? I, I think with anxiety, when your kid is young, or even with, with sometimes anger is again, very quickly interrupt the thinking process and change their attention. When my daughter, for example, was like four and she would start crying because we would give her something or whatever, my first question would be, I'd say, Brie, where does it hurt? And she would stop and she said, nothing hurts. I said, what are you crying for? Right. 
So to do things like that, now as again, every parent has their own style and every parent has to feel comfortable with the types of uh, strategies, if you will. But for me, that was very um, natural. I take a very playful way. There's a difference when your son or daughter is having an anger problem. One of the ways that parents can know if it's an anger problem is by the duration of the anger. How long does your son or daughter stay angry? If something happens Saturday morning and they're still angry on, about it on Tuesday, this starts to become a problem. Right. The, uh, does it lead to aggression? Remember, anger is a feeling. Uh, aggression is a action. If it happens once, that becomes a anger uh, an anger problem. The, I will give you an example that when my daughter was, when we lived in LA in fourth, in, when she was like in third grade, second grade, one of the other students got kicked out of the school because he strangled, like in a fight, he was strangling another kid and he wouldn't get up and they had to pull him off. So he was asked to leave the school. Well, years later, and I'm talking about now maybe 15 years later, I'm in San Francisco giving a talk, watching the World Series in my room, and it's interrupted because a kid in Santa Barbara who called himself the Angel of Death mowed down 20 students at UCSB. It was the same kid. Oh, wow. That's scary. Yeah, but but it was, the problem was never dealt with. Right. Because... One of the things for parents that I found is that it's very scary to recognize serious illness and acknowledge it in your own kids. Mm -hmm. The classic novel that was also a Broadway play in a um, Academy Award nominated film um, was called The Bad Seed. I would recommend that as a, uh, a book. It's the book that really introduced the concept of nature versus nurture and made it like a public, uh, a public debate. And you see how horrifying it is. Now to a much lower degree, having to tell a parent as a school psychologist that your kid has, is in the lower range of um, intellectual functioning. Parents would be in denial as well about that as, as well. Right. So one of the great, disservices that a parent can do to their son or daughter is to have an inaccurate perception, be it about their mental health or to be it about their uh, ability, their capabilities in, in school. Right. And even just seeking help right away. I know like with anxiety, people will think it's just a phase. They're little, it's just a phase. And then all of a sudden we, we're still seeing at eight, at 12, at 18, it actually gets progressively worse if we're not on top of it. So best course of action is to get help right away. Better safe than sorry. We know early intervention is so important. And one of the things that I learned as a psychologist from my good psychiatry friends is that when a person has a true anxiety disorder, uh, they will need medication. And I don't care what people say about it and so on. I'm convinced by the expertise of these people uh, in terms of therapy and so on. It's like if a person is really clinically depressed, they're gonna need to be medicated. And parents need to know and everybody's like, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it's the luck of the drawer. There is a strong hereditary uh, association 
with uh, depression and anxiety. The first thing I would ask a person in an intake when they're depressed is anybody in your family? And 75% of the time, oh yeah, my aunt was depressed, you know, had depression and she was hospitalized and so on. So there's nothing wrong about that. In fact, it's the healthy parent who will check that out and not be afraid. It's like if your kid has ADD, that you want them to be on some uh, concerta or whatever the current one is now, because it's going to help them, not right. hurt them. Right. Yeah, that's an important topic. Uh, just knowing that we're running out of time here. Uh, anything for creating positive emotions? Yeah. Yeah. So the so one of the things we know through research on emotions is, is that emotions impact behavior. Mm-hmm. And there are some emotions like that always bring out the worst, like depression, despair, dejection will lower the sense of productivity. Very few people when they're depressed say, I love getting up in the morning. And uh, then we have what we have swing emotions, anger and anxiety, which can be used actually to enhance behavior. So when I was in graduate school and anxious about a test, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and uh, this is before we had Prozac and I'd look up the answer and then I could go back to, to bed and, and anxiety could be a cue that I need to study more so it could help me. Anger, we can harness it. I'm going to show them as many athletes have done. So they can work for you against you. But there are other emotions, confidence, optimism, enthusiasm that always bring out the best. And it's very important to know for a parent, for an individual, how to create those types of emotions. Now, if, if you were to meet somebody who, such as yourself, who is, seems to be very, very confident, I always say to them, if you met a 30-year-old kid who was confident, how do you think they got there? What type of experiences do you think they had? One of the things I found that is a common denominator among common confident people is that they had supportive parents the the uh because what support does when you are a supportive parent it allows a kid to be to fail but still feel as they have a landing pad and that it is not the end of the world and then they can learn from that uh one of the ways that a parent can quickly get a kid to be confident is to simply assuming that there are some to rely on. Like if, if, I, if my son are, is a straight A student and they are in um, 12th grade and taking the SATs, one of the ma- ways I'll make themselves confident is you've done this a hundred times. In other words, using past successes can make the person feel confident in the current, um, in the current situation. Sometimes when your kid is younger, what the, the mistake that a parent will make or that a teacher will make is wait for the person to become successful before you praise them. What you want to do here is use some, uh, what was some behavior modeling, those successive approximation, catch them doing something right, create successes mm-hmm. for them. So when my son started the interview process, the first thing I said to him, I said, Danny, the goal is not to get the job because you never know. The, the job could already be taken by the boss's uh, cousin's son uh, and so on. Your uh, success is having a good interview because if you have a good interview, it's only a matter of time before. 
So he became more and more confident. He wasn't getting the job, but he was becoming more and more confident in the interviews, which eventually would lead to a job, which is exactly what would, what would, um, what would happen. For parents to help their kids to be confident, one of the things that you have to do is you can't uh, kiss up to them, tell them how wonderful they are, and so on. Now, there's a difference between saying, I love you and you're wonderful. I would recommend that parents stick with the I love you mm -hmm. rather than you are wonderful, which usually has some type of performance type of ramifications tucked away in, in, uh, you know, somewhere. Um, so that will help in terms of letting your son or daughter know as a way to take risks. But you have to start with an accurate appraisement and so on. Because confidence does not come, it's like self-esteem a lot. Self-esteem and self, what's the other word? Self-efficacy, mm -hmm. that comes from your own successes. A, a kid will become confident by not by the parents telling them how great they are. One time I said to my son, it was after, um, a, a basketball game, a league basketball game. And I said, Danny, you play great. And he said to me, dad, I'm not great. I just like playing with my friends. And I thought <laughs> it was so great that he, that he said that. Mm -hmm. So you have to start with an accurate way because the kid has to know that he or she is responsible for their actions that's another important point of making and building somebody's confidence so it isn't making the person confident it's giving them the skills that will allow them to be confident and one of them is teaching how to take criticism in a positive way rather than getting defensive so they can learn about it i can make you a confident speller if you'll take my criticism on how to study but if you get defensive i cannot make you a confident um uh, speller. And, and the reason it's important for the parent to teach the son or daughter that their actions are related to the um, outcome is otherwise, if they don't see that connection, why would they try? Why would I study if, if I study three hours? It's not going to make a difference anyway. This is one of the big differences is we talk a little about optimism between a optimist and a pessimist. And by the way, I did find when I was doing research in this area, I did find just like there's a depressive gene, I found several studies that say there's an optimistic gene. Some people do wake up on the sunny side of the bed every single day, other people don't. But if you want your son or daughter to learn how to wake up on the sunny side of the bed uh, is to have some, what's the first thing they say to themselves in the morning? The, the, what, what's the first thing you say when you, who has a better day? You know, the, the kid who wakes up in the morning and says school is going to suck. I'm going to take another test and probably do lousy on it and yada, yada, yada. Or the kid who wakes up and say, Hey, I don't care if they give me a test. I'm still going to have a great day in school. Even if I don't, which I know I'm not going to get an A, even if I just barely pass the test, I'm still going to make it a great day at, at school. Because 25 years later, in terms of, quote, a narrow definition of success, who's doing better, I'll take that optimist. It is very hard to believe the benefits of optimism unless you read the research. Otherwise, it sounds like somebody is uh, making it up. But right. kids who are optimistic enjoy college much better. They have much better self-esteem. They do better in sports. They do better in school. Why? Because they believe that if they make an effort, they're optimistic that their hard work will pay off. 
parents should start using optimistic vocabulary words as a way to teach their son or daughter. How many of them say in front of their kid, what a beautiful day it is, or we're gonna have a wonderful time and so on, and, and, have, a, and have a great day. Uh, smiling in that, I don't care how hokey it is, uh, parents stand in front of a mirror with your kids and put on your smiley face so you can see what it looks like. Uh, just like in the movie Full Metal Jacket where the guy says, I just watched this the other night, so it's in my mind, where he says, let me see your war face. Well, let me see your happy face. Yeah. Teach kids to smile at their friends because we know that if you smile at somebody, even if it's a stranger, they will smile back. It puts you in a good mood. Making yourself enthusiastic. What is a song? It's two minutes, mm. it's one minute before a, you have to give a presentation at four o'clock. I'm talking to the high school kid now and it's been a rough day and you're drained. How do you make yourself enthusiastic? Well, uh, sing your favorite song for 30 seconds. Can anybody say they don't feel enthused after listening to YMCA for 35 seconds? That's why it's the all time wedding bar mitzvah song. The, the keep a picture on your iPhone that makes you, um, feel enthusiastic when you when you look at it. I have a copy now of my book on my um, on my iPhone. I used to have my kids. I'll go back to them, but every time I look at it, it puts me in a it puts me in a good mood. Move around. Mm -hmm. You know how you move around when you're anxious and so on? Well move around on purpose to make yourself enthusiastic. Every time I would give a presentation. One time I was in Kansas City and I went to graduate school at University of Kansas. So I still had some friends there. So I must have been out till like two o'clock in the night before doing what we do. And the next morning in the Crown Plaza Hotel for Landall Lakes, the butter company, there's like 600 people in the audience and I'm sitting in one of those lobby chairs just resting. And the lady comes up to me and she says, Dr. Weisinger, will you be a little more enthused during your presentation? And I remember saying to her, yeah, I'm not wasting it, though. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then one minute before I had to go on, I did, I did 60 seconds of the alley shuffle, bobbing and weaving. I pumped myself up. And the next thing you know is I am enthused. So those are some very quick ways. Enthusiasm will always happen when you complete a goal. But we don't complete goals every single every single day and when a and when your kid does do well when was the last time as a parent you gave your son or daughter a high five right. what when you want to make them enthusiastic what's the voice you talk into you got to use a little pacino like in a, any given sunday and and jazz them up so you know that takes a parent out of their comfort zone mm -hmm. i want parents to spend five minutes a day for a week speaking in an enthusiastic voice and then they can speak in a depressed voice and they will start to see what the, what the difference is. Yeah. And that's what they should do with their kids. How many of them start off the morning breakfast table, if you are lucky enough to have breakfast with your, you know, with your teens when everybody's on different schedules. But if you are, how many start out with a family joke session as a way to bring enthusiasm in? People say, oh, it's hokey because humor needs to be spontaneous. Oh, you mean like when you watch a movie and the guy's funny because they're reading a script script yeah yeah you know or the same yeah. thing doing a, a standard monologue on, on one of the shows so i'm saying that bringing humor in another good way of making 
creating family enthusiasm is what I call positive reminiscing. Hey, remember that camping trip we went on three years ago and everybody starts talking about and jazzed up and maybe, hey, let's even do it, do it again. Yeah. My girls love looking back through photo albums and videos and laughing, you know, and we do try, I think just in instilling some of that silliness, playfulness, I think in I our think house, so it's important. in our house, it's pretty easy because we're, we all have ADHD. So when our meds wear off, we're, <laughs> we're all playful, but even when we're anxious, I remember we went skiing earlier this year and we were in, uh, Avalanche, Avalanche area and there was signs all around us. Don't touch the dynamite and all of a sudden these explosions started happening above us and so all the way down the ski hill we're singing how we're gonna die on the ski hill you know singing a song it doesn't change the fear but it changes our response to it and our relationship right yeah prevents you from being overwhelmed exactly sometimes well, using metaphors so that a parent at a young age i just thought of this as an example based on what you just said so you're at the beach and you're walking into the waves and you don't run into the water but if you can think of it so that you're walking your little kid in and then you say you know there's a, you're gonna have a lot of times like this in life where you go a little get used to it come back and then you can go you can go further desensitize yeah. it so important well thank you so much this was wonderful chatting i'm we could probably talk for 10 hours on this topic yeah. i think there's so much but i appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts any last words of wisdom before we sign off for today thank you for um, having me now just the words of wisdom would be to practice some of the things we spoke about yeah that well that's, that's just it yeah practicing what you hear. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Enjoy Thank the rest you of your day. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you.